Good morning. I do have notes. I just had them up here already, just so you know you're not too worried. So thank you, Johnny and Jennifer and uh, Dwayne and Mariah, for leading us in worship this morning. Hallelujah. What a Savior indeed. So today is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. This is the day that our Lord and Savior, where we celebrate the day that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead. That God rolled back the stone tomb and Christ walked out with his glorified and resurrected body, a glorified body that we too can one day look forward to receiving. And this is the believer's living hope, a hope set in Jesus Christ. And, and very often, on, on a, especially on Easter or Resurrection Sunday, I guess, or Easter Sunday, we might have a sermon specifically on the resurrection itself, but I decided that we would continue in the book of Colossians today, partly because the, the book of Colossians is a very Christocentric book in itself, and uh, also partly because I like to start my sermons well in advance because I don't preach full-time, so I like to start about uh, four or five weeks in advance, and I was actually halfway through my, my sermon preparation before it occurred to me that I'd be preaching on Resurrection Sunday, so that's also... Partly, partly my fault, I guess, but Pastor Mark will be, is preaching on the resurrection at Grace Life this Sunday, and if I remember right, I do believe that he plans on bringing that same sermon here next Sunday, so we, sh- we still won't miss out. So our text today is found in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and having a good understanding of the context of this letter as a whole is is absolutely crucial to understanding what Paul has written thus far in the book of Colossians, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. And it's crucial to understanding what our text is about this morning. False teachers had infiltrated the church in Colossae, and it was threatening the church there. And these false teachers were actually some of the most dangerous kind. Not because they actually physically harmed the people there, but but because they denied the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. They didn't deny that Jesus was God or that salvation even came through Jesus. But they taught that Jesus wasn't really enough for salvation or even sanctification. And they mixed grievous error in with the truth. And this is dangerous because when you have error mixed in with truth, the truth can make the error sound reasonable or as we see in verse 4, they gave plausible arguments. And Paul spends most of chapter 2 outlining the errors the false teachers were teaching. But what does he do before that? What does he do in chapter 1 and in our text this morning? Paul spends a lot of time building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. He shows that Christ really is the king over all creation. He shows that Christ really is sufficient in all things. Nothing needs to be added to the person or the work of Jesus Christ. Understanding who Jesus is and understanding what he did helps us to realize that we don't need things added to the gospel or to the scriptures. And there are many things even today that mix in error with truth. Things like the health and wealth gospel that teaches that Jesus not only died for your sins, see there's the truth, but that he did, that, that he died to give you your, you your best life now. He died to give you good health in this life and to give you wealth. If you will only have enough faith. 
You see, they take the actual gospel of Jesus dying for our sins and add a teaching that every human desires, which is health and wealth. There are many such examples, but this is one of the more obvious ones that, I, that I'm pointing out here. And this is why the ministry of the church, or even as, as individuals maybe within the church, is twofold. Number one, it is to, to preach Christ and all the riches of, of wisdom and knowledge of who Jesus is, and thereby building up the church. And the second part is to warn against false teachings. And we see that in our text this morning. In verses 1 to 3, Paul exhorts the readers to be encouraged and united in love and to reach the full assurance, understanding, and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And in verses 4 to 5, he provides a warning and explains the reason why he had thus far focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The main idea of this passage is that the Colossians are exhorted to be motivated towards spiritual growth through teaching, preaching, and warning. To be motivated towards spiritual growth by attaining the riches of Christ and all that entails to be kept from deception and fine-sounding arguments. And Christians must work hard for the sake of the church to build her up. And Christians must fight against false teachings for the sake of the church to protect her. Why is this important? Maybe because every false teaching denies Christ's deity or his sufficiency and often both. If Christ is the body of the church, the foundation of the church, the cornerstone of the church, the Lord of the church, the righteousness of the church, that any straying away from Jesus Christ, even in subtle, nice-sounding ways, will be the downfall of the church because it is no longer relying upon him. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That means to look at any other place than Jesus for salvation or even sanctification is to do so at the risk of eternal damnation. So with that, let's go to our text in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, starting in verse 1 to 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ." As I already mentioned, we see two parts to this passage. In verses 1 to 3, we we see Paul's struggle to build up the church and encourage her towards love and knowledge of Christ. And in verses 4 to 5, a warning is given. And as you'll see in the outlines that you received this morning, I have two main points in my sermon with sub-points for each. First point is that Paul's work for the church is to be encouraged, unified, and assured in the riches of Christ. And then Paul's warning for the church in verses 4 to 5, not to be deluded, but to remain firm. Paul's love for the church is evident again in the passage. These are people whom Paul has never met, yet Paul rejoices in his suffering for their sake and the sake of the broader church. In 2 verse 1, Paul repeats what he already said in chapter 1 verse 24. 
So these are bookends to that statement. And Paul says that he rejoices in his suffering for your sake. He is burdened by the health of the church in Colossae and Laodicea, which is a city that was close by Colossae. He tells us in verse 1 that he has never seen these people face to face, yet he struggles for them. When Paul speaks of struggling, it may be that he has in mind specifically his imprisonment. Remember, Paul is in prison when he is writing this letter. But I believe there's enough evidence in chapters 1 and 2 that his struggling probably includes more than suffering and most likely is broader to include the work that he is doing on their behalf. This work includes writing this very letter, keeping them constantly in his prayers, the teaching and preaching that Paul has done. Paul's struggling encompasses all of that. And Paul struggles struggles in his labor of love because he desires the church to grow. And one of these ways is through encouragement, which is our first subpoint. Although the parallels may not be exact, I believe we should see Paul as an example of what it means to struggle on behalf of the church, to be encouraged and to encourage others. His concern is more than a feeling or an emotional state. As he just stated, he, he has a struggle. It is, he is struggling, which means that it involves an intentional activity. To encourage someone is to build someone up. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And yet, when you look at our world around us, it just seems bent on tearing people down. A quick look at a comment section on almost any news article online objectively confirms that. When you think of today's world of social media, one would be tempted to think loneliness should no longer exist. We all have access to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter friends with a few short clicks of the button. Yet loneliness and depression are a major problem and concern in today's world. According to a 2015 Forbes study, as social media engagement increases, so does anxiety and depression. Rather than create belonging, you're trading the actual presence of another person for a screen in your hand. All this does is feed narcissism, it feeds gossip, comparing yourself to others, and isolation. Social media trades eye contact and a bond with another person over a cup of coffee for likes on a screen. Our worth is then evaluated according to how many likes we might get or we don't like or we don't get on our posts. We compare ourselves with others. We long for a platform that someone else may have on social media. We long for people to like us. We reread our posts narcissistically every time we get another like on it. When we don't get a like, we are tempted to delete our post because we're afraid our post will cause someone to like us less instead of more. And this is all just a false reality of our worth. But it's not, it's not all negative, though. Think about it. We crave this because this is how God created us. But the problem is in our sinful ways, we go looking for it in all the wrong places. Instead of looking for it on social media, we need to be looking for this interaction within the church. The Bible tells us to encourage others and to be encouraged. We need to be a friend. We are probably most often waiting on others to encourage us. We like to be on the receiving end of encouragement. And there are times when that is absolutely appropriate. But we need to be the one who struggles. 
We need to be the one who struggles like Paul did for the sake of the church to step up and encourage those around us and not just wait for others to struggle for our benefit. I read about an interview, um, I read about an interview about a comedian named Tom Arnold. Not sure who he is, but he said the reason why he wrote books and did stand-up comedy and really everything he did was because he was broken and desperately wanted people to like him. Can we all relate in some sense? And the truth is, God created us to be relational. But our sin often causes us to desire sinfully, to always be on the receiving end and never the giving end. God gave of himself in the most selfless act in history. A perfect man who had to die for the sins of wicked people. And it should drive us to reach out, to encourage and to build up others around us. Remember, not only did Jesus die for our sins, but he died because of our sins. And that should humble us and help us to grow in grace. So how can we encourage? How can we apply this to our life? It can be simple. We can be praying for someone. Tell them you're praying for them. Tell someone how you appreciate their ministry, whether it's the pastor, the sound person, the worship team, the people cleaning up chairs every Sunday. Encouragement in itself is a ministry. You can visit the sick. You can come early to help set up. You can text someone something encouraging. And yes, you can be an encouragement even on social media. As Pastor Mike has shown us the last few Sundays, to seek the praise of others is wicked when it is God who deserves the praise. Encourage others not with a wrong motive, not for your own praise, but as Paul, because you want to build up the bride of Christ. Your left hand does not need to know what your right hand is doing. Love the church enough that you struggle for her sake in building her up. Remember, the church is Christ's bride. Therefore, we should be motivated to do as Paul did and to struggle on behalf of the church and to encourage each other. And that brings us to our second sub-point, the struggle on behalf of the church to be united in love. Paul labored to see the church be united or knit together in love. In Philippians 2, verses 1 to 7, if you want to turn there, Paul describes Christian unity even further, but with Christ as our example. Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, so there you have a statement on unity, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And if we can make a simple list here, we would see the Christian unity as an encouragement, comfort and love, participation in the Spirit, affectionate and sympathetic, being of the same mind, do not have selfish ambition to be humble and counting others as more significant than ourselves, looking to the interests of others and having this mind 
having one mind, which is also the mind of Christ. This is the type of unity that Christ set as an example for us. This mind, the humble mind that thinks like the list in these verses described. For this is also the mind of Christ. You see, unity in the church is not due to its good organization, maybe, or to its structure. That can bring a level of unity, but it is temporary and it is man-made. True unity is organic in nature. All believers share certain benefits. They all share the same eternal life. They share the same helper in the Holy Spirit. They share the same Savior by whom all were placed into the same body. There is, an, there is an organic unity because of our identity, because of who we are in Jesus Christ. Since true unity is organic in nature, it should follow then that this unity should show in an outworking, in an action of the Christian life. If there is no outworking of this in the Christian life, then we should examine ourselves. In fact, John 13 says unity in love is evidence of a true faith. Turn to John 13, verse 34. Unity in love is evidence of a true faith. This is Jesus speaking. John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And you also are to love one another. By this, all people, not some people, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Louis Bonhoeffer reminds us of this when he said, quote, He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself, with all of its weaknesses and frailties, becomes a destroyer of the Christian community. When we dismiss the local church, we dismiss and become destroyers of Jesus' first and foremost love. End quote. Turn to John 17, verse 21. John 17, 21 says, Unity in love is the evidence given to the world that the Son was sent into the world. Sorry, that's not the verse itself. That's what, what describes the verse. Unity in love is the evidence given to the world that the Son was sent into the world. So starting at verse 20, actually, not 21, starting at verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, the unity statement there, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they may also be in us. So that, so here's why, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This should move us to the core. This should really affect how we live our Christian life. Christian love and unity is a testimony of Jesus Christ to this world. It is a testimony of true saving faith personally, and it is a testimony of God sending his son into the world. We cannot expect the world to believe that Jesus was sent into the world unless it sees a measure of unity and love amongst believers. In Romans chapter 12, Paul helpfully provides a list again, if you want to turn there, in Romans chapter 12. Paul helpfully provides a list again there of what unity and love and action within the church looks like. A unity and love that abhors or hates evil and clings to what is good. 
starting in verse 9, Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's just a beautiful list, uh, list of verses written out in a list form describing what Christian unity and love looks like in action. I must also remind you, though, that Paul, in all these verses, is not speaking about a blanket type of unity that compromises truth for the sake of, of, of merely peace. This is how unity today is so often described. But Paul is talking to be, a, um, he's speaking of being of one mind, believing what the Bible says and being unified in rejecting false teaching, being unified in rejecting sin in our lives being unified in rejecting worldly sinful pleasures and worldly lusts of the flesh, being unified in humble submission to one another, being unified in love for one another, being unified in serving one another, being unified in rejecting false doctrines that attempt to add to the gloriousness of Jesus Christ. That is the unity in mind here, to be of one mind in these things. And Paul makes that very obvious in Colossians as he leads the Colossians to reject the falsehoods being taught in the church as outlined in chapter 2. This unity and love must be purposeful and it requires action. Paul reminds his readers of this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, where he says, Put on then, so here's an action of putting on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Unity in love is a secret ingredient for a healthy church and a healthy Christian life. As verse 14 highlights, that above all else, put on love. Again, love for other Christians in unity is an evidence of true Christianity. And this ties into our third sub-point, for the Colossians to be assured in the riches of wisdom and knowledge of Christ. So being assured in, in Christ, to be assured in our salvation, not just knowing what the gospel is, but as we look at our lives and examine whether we have this true love of other believers, not just a simple feeling of love, but a love that is motivated to action, is an evidence that we can look, is an evidence that we can look to in our own personal lives in order to be assured we really do have true and saving faith. Remember what Jesus said in John 13, that by this people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Also remember what John wrote in 1 John 5.13, 
First John 5.13, where it says, I write these things to you so you may know you have eternal life. What things is John referring to here? Well, the things that he's referring to is everything that he wrote in the book of First John preceding chapter 5, verse 13. One of the things that John wrote about the most was about love true Christians have for each other. And that love is an evidence that you may know you have eternal life, as he outlines in verse 13 in chapter 5, and that you really can be assured in it. In fact, look at John, 1 John 3.14. 1 John 3.14, it says, We know that we have passed out of death into life. Again, we know we have passed out of death and into life because, why? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Looking a little further again in 1 John 2, verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. If you do not have love for the brothers, you are in darkness. Being in darkness is to not know Jesus Christ. And you have no understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Assurance also comes by knowing and understanding the fullness of the riches of Jesus Christ, by understanding the truth about who Jesus Christ truly is and what he has done, realizing that salvation is nothing of us and all of him. Sometimes we know truths, but we fail to properly understand them, and it creates doubts in our minds. Paul highlights this here, that assurance comes from a proper knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ. Paul recognizes the dangers that false teachings can create. And some, and anytime something is added to Jesus Christ or added to the gospel, it devalues or de-emphasizes Christ and it causes us to rely more on something else besides Jesus Christ and it causes us to rely on what we maybe do or what we maybe don't do and it dethrones Christ and therefore our assurance falters because we no longer fully rely on the only source of salvation and sanctification which is Jesus Christ. Let me think about it. When we struggle as believers, when we struggle with the assurance of salvation, it is because we become focused on what we do instead of what Christ did. We tend to compare ourselves maybe with another believer and think I'm not nearly such a good person as that guy. Maybe I'm not even saved. But you don't know what that person's secret life is like. And the, uh, the ironic thing is, if we look to and compare ourselves with other sinners, with other people, we will struggle with assurance. But if we look to the only person in history who is actually sinless, we will find our salvation to be wrapped up in a comforting blanket of assurance. Another way we struggle with assurance of salvation is trying to maintain it, trying to maintain our salvation by our works or by our obedience. Nobody here, as far as I know, believes in salvation by works. And yet so often we believe that we need to now maintain our salvation by our works. Sometimes maybe in the evening, and I'm speaking of personal experience here for myself as well, that we think, man, I haven't read the Bible all day. I should probably quickly read it before bed yet. Or I haven't prayed much today. I should probably quickly pray before bed yet. But why do we do that? What's the motive behind that? And we should be doing these things. We should be reading the Bible. We should be praying. But when we often come to these things with the wrong intentions and the wrong motives. We do them thinking that God probably isn't pleased with my prayer life today or maybe the day before. 
He maybe isn't pleased with, with my Bible reading, and we feel guilty, and we end up doing, doing these things because we want to improve our standing before God. We want to improve how God looks at us. We want to feel better about ourselves because I'm, I'm having doubts about my, my salvation, maybe. And we imagine God will be more pleased with me if I do it. God is pleased with obedience, but not with those motives. It assumes that God feels differently about us depending on what we do. The motive is an attempt to improve your standing before God, thinking that God will look more favorably on you if you quickly read the Bible yet before bed, or if you quickly read, uh, quickly pray before bed. And then if you fail, you will struggle with your assurance because now you're depending on your own obedience to maintain your salvation instead of the obedience of Jesus Christ. Remember what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that if you are a believer, you have the righteousness of Christ within you. That means that when God looks at you, he sees not what you attempt to do to maintain your salvation, but he sees what Christ already did for you. He sees the righteousness of Christ when he looks at you. How can you possibly improve on that? There is nothing you can do that improves upon the righteousness of Christ and how God already sees you when he looks at you. If you are truly born again, because he sees Jesus' righteousness, he sees what Jesus did, he sees Jesus' perfectly lived life, he sees Jesus' obedience, and he does not see your feeble attempts. Is that not good news? Every time we lack the full assurance in Christ, it is always because we are not fully depending upon Christ. We are depending upon our own works to maintain our salvation and our feeling of assurance instead of realizing and fully believing that Christ already was perfectly obedient in our place. And if by any chance there's someone who thinks that, well, maybe I don't need to be obedient then because Christ was, then you are very possibly not truly born again because you are not grateful and you do not understand what it is that Christ did for you. And as Paul says here, those who are born again look to Christ. We focus upon Christ. We find our assurance in the full riches of the wisdom and knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. We must look to Jesus, and that is what Paul is saying here. You can only find assurance by looking to Jesus Christ. You will not be assured if you attempt to add to Christ. Attempting to maintain salvation through obedience is adding to Jesus Christ. It's just another way of adding to Christ, just like the Colossian false teachers were doing. Where false teaching abounds, we must have a settled conviction of Christ's deity and sufficiency. Christ is nothing more and nothing less than the fullness of understanding and of spiritual wisdom. He alone is the source of every conceivable bit of spiritual truth worth having. Look at verse 3 in Colossians chapter 2. We need to be fully assured in Christ because in him are hidden all the treasures, not some, but all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. True wisdom and knowledge are exclusive to Christ. To look anywhere else is foolish. Do you want to be wise? Do you want to have true knowledge? Study the scriptures. Do you want assurance? Study the scriptures. When our faith is weak, it is because we don't know our God that well. We do not know him well enough. How do we get to know him better? 
by reading what he has revealed about himself within the Scriptures. True wisdom is only found in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20, if you want to turn there to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20. We find that true wisdom is only found in Jesus Christ. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand, si- demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And Paul is highlighting this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, because the false teachers were, in effect, they were denying this reality. They were saying that some treasures are found in Christ, but not all. You also need to rely on visions. You need to rely on things unseen. <coughs> you need to follow these rules. You need to worship angels. You must deny yourself any kind of worldly pleasure. This is why subtle false teachings are so dangerous, because they are mixed in with truth. They often don't completely remove Christ, but they do remove his complete sufficiency. How do these things apply to us today? Well, I have often heard, yes, Jesus saves, but if you want to be completely free from sin, you must also cut off generational curses or soul ties or perform theophostic prayers or allow someone to cast out demons or bind them or you must possibly speak in tongues. And these are just some of the ways that I have often heard people add to Jesus. And these are dangerous because the idea behind them is, yes, Jesus does save, but you must also do this in order to live a true spiritual life free from sin. And this is exactly, exactly what the false teachers in Colossae were doing in chapter 2 that Paul was condemning. The essence of a false teaching is denying the deity or the sufficiency of Christ in all things pertaining to the Christian life. And this is really what Paul has been saying all along in chapter 1. In chapter 1, we learn that Christ is the preeminent one. He is the creator and he is the sustainer of the universe. He is the fullness of God. And we can joyfully say he is the ruler over death by having power over death. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 says that he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Defeating death is the final victory. Being firstborn does not mean being the first to do something, as uh, Jehovah's Witnesses might say. But firstborn means to rule over or to be in a position or rank over something. For example, in the Old Testament, Israel was called the firstborn. But they were not even the first nation. King David was called the firstborn, but he was not the oldest in his family even, nor was he the first king. To be firstborn means that you are heirs according to God's grace. King David received, uh, Jesus was in, within the lineage of King David. King David was, was God's, was an heir in that way. And Jesus is the heir of all creation and therefore is called the firstborn, including over death. 
He rules over all. That is what firstborn means. He rules over all, including death and creation. He is firstborn or ruler over death, so that, look at uh, chapter 1, verse 18, so that he might be preeminent in everything. Having power over death itself proves the ultimate victory and proves Christ truly is sufficient and nothing needs to be added to him. And we too, as believers who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, share in this resurrection. This is the celebration of Easter Sunday, that Christ has risen from the dead. And because the Lord Jesus Christ is a ruler over death, then those who are his are already hidden in him. And death cannot have us. We are promised in Romans 8 that Christ has glorified, he has glorified those whom he justified. Christ really is sufficient to save and to keep those whom he has saved. But if today you have not trusted in Christ for salvation, turn to him. Recognize your sins have separated you from a holy God. Your sins are evil and wicked in the sight of God. And God must punish sin because the Bible says he is just. And that's what being just means is that sins must be punished. He cannot let sins go free without any kind of punishment because he is a just God. But the good news is that God made a way for sinners to be reconciled, that if you turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness, then God punished his son for your sins. And that is why God can still be just and the justifier because he punished his son for your sins. And you can rest assured that your sins have been paid for by Jesus Christ. But if you refuse to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you will bear the punishment for your sins one day. Turn to him today. He promises that whoever comes to him, he will never turn away. You will find that he is a gracious, a kind, and a merciful God. So Christ really is preeminent in all things, and even over death itself, which is why in the next verse, Paul emphasizes in chapter 2, verse 4, back in Colossians, where Paul emphasizes, I say this, I say these things in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments or reasonable or fine-sounding arguments. So Paul's warning for the church, which is broken up into two parts here, to not be deluded and to be, and to remain firm and fully convinced. Looking again at verse 4, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Everything Paul has been saying up to this point has been for one reason, that the Colossians would not be deceived or deluded, that they would not be easily convinced, that they would not be led easily astray and follow after every wind of doctrine. Believers should meditate on this fact that Christ rose from the dead, contemplated Meditate upon it in your minds that if Christ rose from the dead, he really and truly is sufficient in salvation and anything added to the gospel does nothing but cheapen it. Paul has been building a foundation of Christ. He has been pointing to Christ to prepare the Colossians for what he is about to say next. And this is what a good ministry does. A good ministry builds a foundation of Jesus Christ as revealed in scriptures so as to equip the saints to recognize truth from error. A good ministry builds up like Paul did in chapter 1, and a good ministry warns against error. The basic attack 
of false beliefs is to deny Christ's deity or his sufficiency to save or sanctify. And 1 Timothy 4.1 calls this a doctrine of demons because it dethrones Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says in these latter times that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Denying Christ's deity is usually easy to spot. When somebody denies that Jesus is really God, it's, it's usually easy to spot. But this is even actually a popular teaching, and you can easily find this online, a, a popular teaching amongst the cult of the health and wealth gospel preachers today. Even people like Kenneth Hagin, Todd White, Robert Morris, Kenneth Copeland, men like these who teach that Jesus became an actual sinner on the cross, and he went to hell for three days, and he had to be born again, that is denying this that Jesus is deity. Or among the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons who teach that Jesus was actually just a created being. These things don't just deny the sufficiency of Jesus, but they deny the actual deity of Jesus. But denying Christ's sufficiency alone isn't always that easy to spot. Whenever someone attempts to add anything to the Christian life, which the Bible does not, in fact, add to the Christian life, is to add to Christ, which is a false teaching and needs to be rooted out. You see, Satan is a master deceiver. Revelations 12.9 calls him the deceiver of the whole world. He uses clever argumentation and persuasion, convincing people of his lies mixed in with half-truths. Lies that will often tickle the ears and sound good at first, but ultimately only harm because they deny who Jesus Christ is. And then the most dangerous lies are those that sound plausible, as though they could be true. And this is part and this is part of the spiritual warfare that Christians are engaged in. And I feel I need to address spiritual warfare for just a moment. Why? Because spiritual warfare is to not be deluded. Deluded. Spiritual warfare is to not be deceived. And to not be deluded or deceived is spiritual warfare. Look again at 1 Timothy chapter 4. How does Satan and his demons attack? Through deceitful teachings. Satan is a deceiver. Spiritual warfare, and how does this apply today? Maybe, maybe, uh, is something that you might be thinking of. Spiritual warfare itself is not casting out and constantly binding demons. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, actually, let's go there. Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. Actually, starting in verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we see that casting out demons in itself is not even a sign of a true believer. So how can that be the only thing that entails spiritual warfare? It is not a true believer, it is not specific signs and wonders that a true believer might be able to do that, that, that determine whether someone is a true believer, but it is what they believe and it is what they teach. That is why we're called believers. Spiritual warfare is not casting out and constantly binding demons. It is not imagining a demon behind every bush and behind every committed sin. 
The Bible teaches us we don't need any help from demons at all to sin. We are quite capable of doing that ourselves. The battle is a battle for truth. That is true spiritual warfare. I'd like to re- recommend a book to you. I forget exactly what it's called, and I didn't look it up, but it's, a, it's written by Jim Osmond, and it is a book on spiritual truth or spiritual warfare. And if you're interested, I can gladly point you in the right direction after the service to, on where to find it. But it's a really good book, and it is important to recognize spiritual warfare for what it is. It is a battle for truth because Satan is a deceiver, and we should not, as believers, be deluded or deceived. His attack on Christians is leading people away from the truth, convincing them of fine-sounding arguments that deny the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Paying attention to this as believers will lead us away from deep spiritual truths, and we must take up the sword of truth to defend the church against plausible false arguments. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6 for a moment. Very well-known passage of Scripture, the full armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, starting in verse 10, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and shoes for your feet, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Spiritual warfare here is called schemes, schemes of Satan. It is a word that describes someone intent on deceiving someone. It is deception we are fighting against, against the forces of evil. It is against these schemes, these false doctrines infiltrating the church that deny Christ's efficiency that we must take up the whole armor of God. Note verse 17. Often you hear about spiritual warfare that the offensive, the offensive tactic employed in spiritual warfare is to cast out demons. But note verse 17. It says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of truth, which is the word of God. Here we see that it is the, the word of God is the offensive weapon. That is the sword of the truth, the sword of the spirit. And it's important to remember that throughout the throughout. Um, throughout the Bible, there are different types of literature, and this is probably something that may be better explained in like a, a one-on-one setting or a, a class or a Bible study session. But it's important to remember there are different types of literature in the Bible. 
that there are some parts of the Bible that are what's called descriptive. Like, for example, when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, it is recording an event that happened, and it is not telling us to do the same. The New Testament has this as well. The gospel and the book of Acts are considered historical or mostly descriptive. And that doesn't mean that we don't learn how to live and behave from them. There are, um, especially in the gospels, there are many parts that are prescriptive as well, obviously, but they're called historical books for that reason. It doesn't mean that we don't learn how to live and behave from these, from these books. But they are in large part recording historical events, and not every portion of it is prescriptive to the Christian life. Where other parts of the Bible are prescriptive, like most of the epistles. And, and we see in these books how to live and behave as Christians. So it's important to understand what parts of the Bible is recording something that happened, and what parts of the Bible truly are prescriptive. And even in, in parts of the Bible that, that are descriptive, for example, there's always truth that we can still take from it. Even in, in the Gospels, when we have Jesus casting out demons, for example, there is truth that we can take from it. But so often when we think about when, when demons were being cast out, today, in today's age, we often think of someone who is maybe really evil. We may think of Hitler, someone who was maybe demon-possessed. But in the Bible, the Bible never says that someone who is evil is demon-possessed. That is not what the Bible describes demon possession. Demon possession, if we put the, param- the descriptive parameters in place, what, um, the verses that describe demon possession, we see that demon possession is, is superhuman strength, it is frothing at the mouth, convulsions, it is self-harm. These are the things that, and we do learn, obviously, that demons are capable of possessing someone. But this is not the spiritual warfare that is prescribed to the church all throughout the epistles. The spiritual warfare describes, all throughout the, uh, the epistles, describe a battle for truth, to, be, to stand firm against deception, to not be deluded by plausible arguments. The sword, the sword of the Spirit is our offensive weapon, which is a scripture, and Paul compares that with the Word of God. The Bible is our offensive strategy. Paul even goes on to include prayer as an offensive weapon as well, to pray for the saints and himself that they may be strengthened to boldly proclaim the gospel. The gospel is the power of salvation. And we must take up our sword of truth and prayers to fight against the schemes of the devil. If we want a strong church, we need to stand firm upon the word of God. One man standing with God is in the majority against the whole world. We must not be easily convinced by fine-sounding arguments, but must test everything according to the Word of God, where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found, who is Jesus Christ, and to continually, continually look to Jesus. This brings us to our final point, to remain firm and fully convinced. Verse 5, Colossians 2, verse 5, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul, not being physically present, may have led the false teachers to use that against him and to convince those in the church that Paul really had no authority over them. But Paul explains that he is with them in spirit, not in a way we might think of today. Paul's explanation is not as simple, my thoughts and prayers are with you, 
but he is intertwined with the Colossian believers through their identity in Christ and by being part of the same body. They are of one spirit. Paul rejoices over their good order and their firmness. Good order and firmness are are military terms. And Paul, the general, rejoices that upon inspection, he finds the troops displaying disciplined formation. And this fits well also with the idea of the Bible being our sort of truth as Christian soldiers. It is this discipline and firmness that is required to combat false teachers and false doctrines. A soldier cannot and must not give the enemy any ground to work with. If he does, the enemy will gain a foothold and an advantage. A Christian should not give false doctrine that dethrones Christ any ground. False doctrine is always a threat and must be resisted with discipline and firmness. As believers, we must set Christ as our foundation. If Christ is all those things as Paul said he was throughout throughout chapter 1, then he is truly sufficient to not only save but to keep his children. He is sufficient to sanctify and set apart his children. To remain firm and fully convinced, we must encourage one another and build one another up. We must be unified in love for one another. Selflessly serving each other, we must be assured that in Christ are found all the riches of wisdom and knowledge and that nothing can be added to him. And to remain firm, we must warn each other of these false doctrines and teachings that could deceive us and harm us through denying the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross and that he rose again on the third day. And there, there are eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses to confirm that this happened and that how you've just said everything in its place, Lord, it's just such a wonderful thing to behold how you have sent your son to die on the cross and to be the firstborn over death so that we too can one day be united with you in glory. And even here, Lord, even here on this earth, we are united to you. And may we be united to each other in love as we are united in you. So that the world may know, Lord, that you have been sent. And the world may know that we truly are believers. Father, I just thank these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.